0: A lot of just small little decisions that added up over the years. (laughs) It was my third year as a professional cyclist. The team doctor came into my room after a hard week-long stage race in southern Spain came in and he told me how, much, how hard I had worked, how proud, proud he was of me, and I needed to basically make my, myself healthier. And he offered me this red pill, and it was a testosterone pill. You know, that little red testosterone pill led to injections of a drug called EPO. We started blood doping. Had I known what I was in for, you know, I would have been, been on the first flight back to Boston, that's for sure.
1: Former Olympian Tyler Hamilton's story and countless others like it are still being told in the speakeasies of sport, even as Russia's doping scandal plays out on the world stage. Doping, the use of drugs and techniques to gain a competitive advantage, has been sneaking up on sport since at least the 1950s. There have been public instances. Stars have fallen. Lance Armstrong coming clean to Oprah about doping to win. Did you ever take banned substances to enhance your cycling performance? Yes. Conspiracies have been revealed.
0: Following yesterday's unprecedented resignation of the East German government, the country's central committee meets later today to
1: decide on new members and new reforms. Countries have been shamed.
0: We start with a blistering report on doping in athletics that cites Russia for systemic corruption
2: backed by the government.
1: Russia's Olympic suspension is the first large-scale Olympic doping conspiracy ever discovered and punished while it was still happening. It may seem like a victory for PED regulation. I mean, it didn't take the fall of the East German communist regime to unearth Russia's treachery. But the difference between the two instances reveal a deeper problem. Despite more and better drug testing, the realization of the physical tolls PEDs put on athletes, and public outcry calling for clean sports institutions, doping remains competition's biggest addiction. And yet, all the sports organizations say is that they don't have a doping problem. How do you cure an addiction that nobody will admit they have? This is The Narrative. I'm Harry Swardhout. Russia's doping scandal, and even the East Germans before it, mirror a culture of performance enhancement that has been going on in professional sports for quite a while. In fact, you have to go back 65 years to find the beginning of the modern doping phenomenon. Here's doping expert Professor John Hoberman.
3: A modern timeline of doping techniques would start in the 1950s when professional cyclists in Europe were using a lot of amphetamine drugs. The 1960s are the decade in which anabolic steroids enter a number of sports, and including track and field and football and weightlifting. Uh, and their use will increase throughout the 60s, uh, and turn into the anabolic steroid epidemic uh, that we have today that is now
1: about 50 years old. According to multiple reports, leagues like MLB and the NFL were awash in amphetamines, often called Bennies or Greenies, up through the 1970s. But amphetamines had relatively benign side effects, like a feeling of euphoria and elevated heart rate. From them, athletes moved on to harder stuff that significantly altered their body chemistry.
3: In the case of human growth hormone, as in the case of anabolic steroids, you are raising above normal the level of a really powerful hormone in your body. It can provoke uh, the onset of diabetes, Uh, Abnormal growth of bones and internal organs, including heart, kidneys, and liver, hardening the arteries as possible, and hypertension, high blood pressure. This is a hormone drug that, if not used in the proper clinical fashion, comes with real risks.
1: Sometimes, doping even changed who the athletes were. With side effects that distorted sex characteristics drastically, some dopers altered more than just their athleticism.
2: During the 60s, 70s, 80s, and even into the 90s, we had suspected that the East Germans were doping. They looked different. They had uh, physiological signs of being bulky. After the wall came down in 89, a series of, of documents, thousands and thousands of documents came forward that actually validated our suspicion that uh, doctors and trainers and coaches had been injecting testosterone and uh, different uh, steroid derivatives into young teenagers, helping them uh, achieve these incredible performances. The big picture was this was a state sponsored by the government, by the president, to make sure that athletes were doped sufficiently till the, the wall came crashing
1: down. That was Dr. Steven Ungerleiter, consultant to the Olympic Committee and writer of the book Faust Gold, which details the extent of East Germany's doping scandal. Ungerleiter poured over thousands of meticulously kept notes on the exact dosages timings and effects of the drugs on east german olympians who could be as young as 14. he didn't need the notes however to see the advantage the east germans got
0: going into the women's 100 meter freestyle 14 fastest times in history in this event were swum by swimmers from the german democratic
2: republic in 1976 during the montreal games which was the benchmark the east german swimming team won every single race with the exception of of one relay where they got touched out and when they won the 13 races they won big i mean huge to the point where many of those records from 76 are in 2016 are still held by these germans
1: it was clear to the casual observer that the east germans were a step above the competition but nobody suspected drugs or At least they couldn't prove it. The World Anti-Doping Agency was not founded until 1999, and while the Olympics did begin testing for performance-enhancing drugs in 1972, the science was still unreliable. Most importantly, the East German doping machine took measures to make sure that their athletes would test clean.
2: The way that they got around it is the same way that the Balco and the Barry Bonds and the famous Marion Jones case is that they pre-tested. They they use the drugs, but they would send their blood in your to a private lab and test before they went to competition. Based on the tests, they would use a masking agent uh, or diuretic to try and wipe out the positive results. That really was the methodology used during the East German regime. The athletes could see exactly what their blood profiles looked like before they went to competition. And if they were too high, they'd bring it down. If they couldn't bring it down, they would get sick, and their coaches would remove them from competition.
1: Once the Olympic Committee finally caught on, they did put measures in place to make sure cheating on such a large scale couldn't happen again. But they were far from foolproof. In fact, some of the engineers of the German doping scandal not only avoided jail time, but found themselves with cushy new jobs. After
2: the trials were over and doctors and trainers and coaches were prosecuted and went to jail and whatnot, an interesting phenomenon happened. Some of the East German doctors and trainers ended up in other countries. So there was this new blood on the market of some former East German convicted dealers who were now available for hire. This went on for quite a while.
3: Sochi hatte ich erstmals über
2: Doping in Russland berichtet.
1: After the German documentary Top Secret Doping, How Russia Makes Its Winners, came out in 2014, the World Doping Agency set up an independent commission to investigate Russian track and field athletes. They found out the Russians had set up a state-sponsored culture of cheating. But East Germany part two, this was not.
2: I really believe they are two different animals. This has come up in the media a lot. We knew years ago that a lot of the Russians were, were doing similar things in the East Germans, but it wasn't a top-down government KGB operation. There were pockets of, of dopers and pockets of scientists and chemists, but it's really not fair to make a cross-the-board comparison to the East German
1: doping machine. Instead of masking the samples to produce a negative test, the Russian dopers simply bribed the labs to flush their positive results. It doesn't matter how accurate the tests are, when the results don't matter. But the Russian Doping scandal did share one thing with its East German counterpart, politics.
2: This was a communist regime. This was a puppet state. Things were very, very bad in East Germany. And uh, the government wanted to show the world that they were very strong and very powerful. If you can't do it in the military and and you can't do it in academia, you show off your muscle in, in sport and they were very successful the other payoff
3: for many of these people uh, is what i like to call psychic income Uh, it is an opportunity for them to feel important it is an opportunity for them to lead the five-star life at hotels and on airliners etc they will be meeting powerful politicians some of whom will grovel at their feet looking for opportunities to put on a major international sporting event i mean it's known for example that after the russians did miserably at the 2010 winter games in vancouver putin just hit the ceiling uh and he he fired the head of his national olympic committee and you know heads were supposed to roll and they were supposed to get better results four years later in sochi Uh, At Putin's Winter Games, uh, they did have much better results.
1: That was Professor Hoberman again. Both Russia and East Germany wanted to look good on a world athletic stage and issued orders from the top to get it done. But it wasn't just the prestige for the country that intrigued the powers that be. Personal power for high-ranking officials and, of course, money also played a large part in scandals. Power money, prestige, it's easy to see how the top powers that be could fall to the appeal of doping athletes, or at least looking the other way. But they're not the ones taking the drugs. Athletes have one reason to dope. It isn't everything, it's the only thing, winning.
0: Cycling back then was, was just, uh, doping was rampant. And if you really wanted to truly compete with the best at, at the best level, you had to do it. You know, I got up to a super high level clean, but then once you got in there at that high level, if you really wanted to be competing in these big races like the Tour de France, that was it was pretty much dope. Doper, go
1: home. That was Tyler Hamilton, former professional cyclist, doper, and writer of the book The Secret Race, in which he outlined the doping culture in professional cycling. The title of his book may be a bit misleading, though, because it seemed that the only people who didn't know about the doping were the fans.
0: Yeah, everybody knew. At the top, at the top level, everybody knew. In, term, in terms of the director knew and supported it. You know, these, the team doctors knew all about it. A lot of the staff members knew about it. You know, some, maybe not all, of the sponsors knew about it. Some did. Um, you know, some of the media knew about it. It's, you know, and it was what you did.
1: Doping was easy because teammates, team doctors, and officials made it easy. Even if someone did want to catch a doper, the limits of the testing regimens and a little help from the trainers kept the athletes out of hot water.
0: So when I started doping, you know, the doctors would give you these little cheat sheets to follow. So they would typically just kind of give you a schedule of what what to take and when. And You know, every year it was different. Then eventually they started doing out-of-competition tests because normally we'd only get test, tested in the races. So you had to, you know, take products, for example, like late at night when you knew they weren't going to, after, the, after you know, certain hours, they couldn't um, test you. But yeah, the doctors were always two steps ahead, so you just kind of followed their instructions, and 99 times out of 100, you were going to be just fine.
1: Even if you came up with a positive test, if you were a big enough star, you might still be protected.
0: There was exceptions made, for sure from the governing body of the sport, which was the UCI, or, or is the UCI. They looked the other way, and they, yeah, made exceptions for Lance Armstrong. You know, I think they're trying to protect their product, but at the end of the day, they're, they're creating a bigger problem.
1: With the proclivity of doping and cycling in the 90s and early 2000s, the sport became less about who was a better cyclist and more about who had the better doping teams, regimens, and... Once restrictions began to make doping more difficult, who had the most guts to continue doping? Suddenly, the way an athlete responded to doping became more important than their innate physical gifts.
0: When I was an athlete, it made us feel better by thinking that, okay, if everybody's doing it, it's a level playing field, but that's really not the case. Every athlete responded differently to these doping products. Certain guys really loved uh, like human growth hormone. It Really, their bodies responded really well to it. Other guys, that didn't. Um, same thing with testosterone. So, you know, everybody was different. Some got massive enhancements due to, due to, you know, performance enhancements due to, you know, product X or product Y.
1: So how do you stop a program that mutually benefits sports from the athletes at the bottom, all the way to the league executives at the top? It's a tough question. Every international sporting body in American League has a drug testing program, but they each come with one fatal flaw.
3: In my opinion, the anti-doping programs of Major League Baseball and the National Football League, they're basically exercises in public relations. Where is the transparency? If you want a transparent doping operation, why won't Major League Baseball and the National Football League outsource to a genuinely uh, independent uh, testing regime? What I see in the newspapers is this trickle of positives coming out of the offices of both leagues. I have no idea who is doing the testing. I have no idea of the procedures. I have no idea about whether the testing is really unannounced or how often it is happening. Without that sort of transparency, with the financial incentives built into not excluding doping players who are going to contribute to revenues,
1: I cannot believe in the integrity of either of these doping programs. If you're leaving the result reporting up to the leagues themselves, why would they turn themselves in? The challenge has to come from the outside. Education is a place to start.
0: Yeah, what what needs to happen to bring down the t- temptation to dope and cycling and really in all sport, just talk about it. You know, talk about it at the dinner table, talk about it with your kids you know i try to go out and talk to young kids as much as possible so because you know the temptations are there and they're only getting stronger and stronger and you know with technology these days you can read so much about any you know x y and z and um i think we really need to uh take a step back and and really look at why we're all doing these sports and it's about having fun and i think it's i think it's become too much of a business too much pressure
1: Athletes who know the dangers of doping are less likely to do it. But with the money involved in professional sports, education might not always be enough. That's where the fans need to step up and make a stand. According to Tyler Hamilton, if sports fans really want clean sports, they need to do more than just refuse to vote Barry Bonds into the Hall of Fame. They need to take action.
0: The public should demand it. The public should demand it. You know, maybe, but I feel like some people don't want to pull back that first layer of the onion. You know, some people don't want to hear about their sports hero that they may or may not, you know. Just, yeah,
1: (laughs) it's tough. Peeling back the first layer of the onion might be tough, like pulling off a Band-Aid. But it's a start on the journey to clean sports. The first step to beating sports addiction to doping might just be the sports fans admitting there's a problem. Special thanks this week to Professor John Hoberman, Tyler Hamilton, and Dr. Steven Ungerleiter. If you like the show, please leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast feed. Tweet about the show using the hashtag SINarrative. I'm at HarrySwardout on Twitter. For more on doping and more deep dives into sports, go to SI.com.